The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning as we uh, come to worship, as we gather together. And um, just by way of a reminder, as I've done uh, in the past, just uh, to let you guys know, uh, we do have an 8.30 service as well. So uh, if you're feeling, um, you know, bunched in a little bit, there's a little bit more space at that service, but, um, uh, but it is great to have you all and for us to worship together. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we'll be looking at this passage from Matthew 20 as we continue in our series on Jesus's kingdom parables. And Jesus's kingdom parables, if you remember, a parable is a metaphor or a story that's drawn from a common experience that challenges our understandings and preconceived notions, and it reveals to us a more biblical way of understanding, a more biblical way of of moving forward. And in the case of the parables, of the kingdom parables, a more biblical understanding of what Christ's kingdom is like. And that's what Jesus has been doing in these parables. He's been revealing to us, he's been showing us the varieties of ways in which we often appropriate the kingdom and the ways that those ways need to be challenged. And this morning, he's challenging Peter and the disciples again. <laughs> like last week, Peter asked a question that initiated a response. It initiated a parable, and that's what we have occurring this week again. We could say that many times as we read through the, uh, the Gospels, right? Peter again, <laughs> again, 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 and that's what we have. Peter again coming to Jesus and needing his understanding of the kingdom to be reoriented, to be re-understood, and that's what we need as well. But in order for us to understand this challenge, this reframing that Jesus is giving us, we need to understand the context in which he gives it. You see, before chapter 20 is chapter 19, and these chapter divisions make it feel as though what takes place in chapter 20 maybe happens days, weeks, or maybe even months after the occurrences of chapter 19, but, but they actually come right after one another. And in chapter 19, what we have is Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, you remember the rich young ruler? This is this one who, who has great wealth, and he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter into your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Keep the law. And he names some of the different Ten Commandments, and the rich young ruler is feeling very good about himself. He's feeling very full. He's very, feeling very confident. And he says, well, I've kept them all since my youth. And then Jesus says to him, well, there's still one more thing. You see, perceiving that the rich young ruler wasn't just about keeping the law, but that he was actually holding on to things instead of Christ's kingdom, Jesus says to him, one more thing you must do. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now this rich young ruler who was once so full of himself, so sure of his works, of his actions, he now goes away sad. And having observed this, uh, this interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus, the apostle Peter comes to Jesus, surely maybe poked or prodded by the other disciples as they've been trying to understand and interpret what they've just heard. And he says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. 
what then will we have? You see, he's saying the disciples, we're not like the rich young ruler. We're not like this one who was unwilling to give up his possessions, to give up his wealth. We have left everything, and they had left everything, right? I mean, the disciples, they had walked away from homes and from families and from vocations. They left their nets on the beach, and they left their boats in dock. They truly had left everything to follow Jesus. And so Peter asked, what will we receive? Or another way of putting it is, what's in it for me? Well, among the many things that Jesus says in response to this, he says this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What will you receive? Eternal life. The last will be first and the first will be last. And to drive this principle home, to, to make this teaching become more real to them, Jesus gives a parable. And that's where we begin our reading in chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw other standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. In the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we do come full of thanksgiving at your grace and your generosity. For we know that we are only here because of your grace. We know that we uh, can only understand by your work. And so we ask that you would work again, that you would be gracious to us, that you would shower us with your spirit so that we would see the wonders of your word and that the words of my mouth would honor you. So be, be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we dive into the passage, let me just say from the outset, because maybe some of you are wondering this already. This is not Jesus giving us a new way to do business, 
Okay, that's not what he's doing. This, we are not to apply this. The right application of this principle is not that if you are an owner or you have employees that you're supposed to pay everyone regardless of skill, regardless of hours, regardless of, of how uh, many years or days or months they've worked for you. You're supposed to pay everyone the same thing. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not the seven principles of Christian business, okay? It's not what Jesus is talking about. No, instead, what Jesus is talking about with this parable is eternal life. And as I read through this parable, it reminded me of a conversation I had with a friend a number of years ago. My friend's name is Kevin. I haven't kept up with Kevin. We kind of went our own ways, and I haven't spoken to him in, well, maybe 20 years now. But I remember I was talking to Kevin shortly after I became a Christian, and I was sharing with him the gospel. I was telling him about Jesus and his grace and his mercy and how there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, that we are brought into his kingdom simply by grace, and that all of our sins are forgiven by his work on the cross. I was sharing this with Kevin, and it was the first time he had ever heard it. And as we were talking and as he's asking questions and we're going back and forth, I I started to feel like he's going to come to faith. Like, it felt like he was moving in that direction. It was this amazing conversation that was taking place. And and he was starting to comprehend God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. And he says to me, but Penny, I got to understand. What, What you're telling me is that a person, any person who prays and trusts God, even seconds before they die, you're telling me even that person can have eternal life. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Isn't that amazing that the power of God's grace is powerful enough that he can save even those people who call out to him with their very last breath? Isn't that amazing and wonderful? I was so excited. And I'm like, he's going to come to faith. That's what I'm thinking. He's getting it. He's understanding it. But instead of excitement and joy and amazement coming from him, he said, but Payne, doesn't that make you mad? That isn't fair. It isn't fair. Now, I have to tell you, I was taken aback when he said this, and I was a fairly young Christian, and I had no idea how to respond. I was expecting joy and excitement. I was expecting him to rejoice that even his sins could be for, but no. No, it wasn't God's grace that he was, that was causing joy for him. Instead, God's grace was making him mad. He said, Penny, that should make you mad. He said, you should be ticked off when you hear this, when you say this, because you came to faith. You came to faith, and your life has changed, and and you stopped partying, and you stopped doing the things you used to do, and, and those friends that you once had, they think you're really weird now, and they don't come around very much anymore, and, and you're saying no to things that you once enjoyed, and now you're going to church, and you're spending your time there, and you're investing your energies and money, etc., 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 He said, you're doing all of these things. And invariably, you'll probably do them for years to come. And that guy gets in? That guy who who didn't have to say no to anything until his last breath. That guy who never had to sacrifice a day in his life. That guy gets in too? It isn't fair. You know, my friend had an understanding of God's kingdom that's more akin to a quid pro quo sort of relationship. Do you know what quid pro quo is? It's tit for tat, this for that, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. 
Quid pro quo is an exchange that takes place that's contingent upon an action. And that's how we expect our world to work, right? We expect that if you're an athlete, you exercise, you work hard, you, you train at your sport, you eat well, and eventually you'll become a better athlete, right? You'll run faster, you'll throw harder, you'll be stronger. Right? In your place of work, if you show up on time, if you work hard, you stay late, you go above and beyond, you're going to be recognized. Maybe you'll get a promotion, maybe you'll get a raise. Students, if you work hard at school, if you pay attention to your classes, if you listen to your teacher, then that's going to result in a good grade, right? This is how we think the world should work. This is how we expect the world to work. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I put in and then I get out. And in many ways, that is how our world works. And that is the very thing that Jesus is challenging in this parable. Because though that might be the way that our world works, the kingdom of God is not quid pro quo. The kingdom of God is not scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of grace. But the laborers aren't operating off of a principle of grace. They're operating off of a principle of merit. Right? The details of the parable are clear. There's five groups of laborers. And each work different numbers of hours. They're doing similar work. They're harvesting the grapes. They're getting it ready to press. They're getting ready to make wine. But the amount of time that they give differs. The first group, they work all day. Now, all day in this context would have been about probably 12 hours. So they're working from morning till night, and they're expected, they're promised that they'll get a denarius, a day's wage. But then we have the second group who works nine hours, and the third that works six, and the fourth that works third, and the final group only works one hour. And the only promise the master makes is the first workers, they're going to get a full day's wage, and the second workers, they'll get what is right. That's all he said. So they actually don't know what to expect. They just know they'll get what is right. And so when the day ends, the foreman comes and the laborers come out and the people who worked only an hour get paid first. And what do they get? A day's wage, a full day's wage. And the, the context or the way in which the story is told, the parable is told, it, it causes us to think that, that everyone, right, all the workers were getting paid the exact same. They were all getting a day's wage. And then finally, the last workers show up, those who have worked 12 full hours. And what are they thinking? I mean, we're told in the parable, they're thinking, hey, if these guys got a full day's wage, surely we're getting, we're getting more. That's what we've deserved. That's what we've earned, right? And so when it comes and they're expecting more money, that's what they get, right? Wrong. That's not what they get. They, don't, they only get a day's wage, the same as the person who worked for one hour. So how do they respond to that? I mean, how would you respond? You've been working at your place of work for, you know, maybe years, decades, you work hard, you get up early, you do everything you're supposed to do. And, and that, that new, new guy, right, that new woman who just graduated from college who works down the hall in that cubicle, right, he or she, they, they show up late, they leave early, they take very, very long lunch breaks. And somehow you find out that they're making the same thing you're making. How would you feel about that? You walk down the hall, man, I'm so happy for you. 
I'm so glad that we make the same wage. I'm so glad that this company is so generous and gracious that you, who are doing not very much and haven't done it for very long, are making what I make. That's what you do, right? Of course you wouldn't, right? All of us, we would be angry, we'd be frustrated. We'd be going and getting our resume ready to send it out, wouldn't we? Like, we don't want to work for that place because it's not fair. And that's what they do. That's what they think, right? They grumble, verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We have worked all day under the, hot of, hot, under the heat of the sun, and they have only worked one hour, and they worked it in the easiest and coolest hour, and you pay them the same amount? It's not fair. But it actually, the... The laborers are saying something more than that because their grumbling, their issue with the master isn't just about economics. It's not just about wages. Did you see what he, they said about these people who only worked one hour? You have made them equal to us. You see, it's not just about wages. It's not just about money. It's about worth and value. The workers, they're finding value in the work that they've done. We're the ones who worked 12 hours. We're the ones who worked under the hot sun. We're the ones who deserve not only a greater wage, but we deserve greater acclaim and greater worth and greater value. You have made them equal with us. Now, friends, before we try to or want to look down upon these grumblers and have righteous indignation on them, we need to be honest that this is what we do as well. Right? We expect the world to be quid pro quo. We expect the world to operate in this sort of tit for tat, right? This for that. Give and get out. We expect the world to function that way and we impose that expectation upon the kingdom of God. And so we say and think things like, why do people love her so much? She doesn't serve like I do. Why do people value him so much and think so much of him? He doesn't work that hard and, and he doesn't give his time. At least he doesn't give it like I do. I mean, we've thought these things, haven't we? Maybe said them. And what we're ultimately saying isn't simply that they shouldn't be valued. We would never say that. Yes, we will value what they have done, but, but they just shouldn't be valued as much as me. But friends, the kingdom of God isn't marked by our works. The kingdom of God is marked by grace and generosity. That's what we see the masters say, right? Am I doing you no wrong? Am I doing you wrong? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, friends, the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom is that God is generous and gracious to his people. And that is actually what we need of him. We don't want and we don't need God to be fair. What we need him to be is gracious. What we want him to be is generous, because if God is fair, then the truth of the matter is, is that none of us will get eternal life. If God is fair, the truth is, is that every one of us will get what we deserve, and what we deserve is judgment. 
Because, friends, what we have accumulated for ourselves is not a ledger full of good works that says to God, I deserve to be led in. What we have accumulated for ourselves is a ledger of debt that says we deserve his punishment. No, we don't want God to be fair. Because if he's fair, we'll get what we have earned. And Romans 6 tells us what we have earned. It says the wages of sin. What we have earned, what we have accumulated for ourselves, the wages of sin is death. See, we don't want God to be fair. We want him to be generous. We want him to be gracious. And the good news is that he is. That he is. For that passage in Romans 6 goes on. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but... I've said this before, and it's worth saying again, but is one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God, not what we have earned, not what we deserve, but God's gift, his gracious and generous gift to us is the very thing we don't deserve, is the very thing we have not earned. It is life through his Son. You see, friends, all that we have comes from God. All that we have is because of his generous and gracious giving. And when we know this, when we know this, we won't respond with grumbling. We'll respond with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, not just for the grace and generosity that he gives to us, but thanksgiving for the grace and generosity he extends to others. You see, that's the response the workers should have had, right? I mean, they should have left feeling thankful, feeling overwhelmed at the the master's generosity that they had received a wage. I mean, we're not told the response of the the 11th and the 9th hour workers. We're not told those who only worked one hour or those who worked four. We're not told how they went away, but it's not hard to imagine it, is it? I mean, if we put on our sanctified imagination caps, right, and we think about how is it that those who walked away would have responded, who received a full day's wage for one hour's worth of work, what would they do? Man, there is a spring in their step, right? They are overwhelmed and in awe and thankful, right? They're probably going and telling their friends, like, can you believe the master? I worked one hour and he gave me a full day's wage. Is that not amazing? This guy's so, we got to go back to this guy next week, right? Like they are going to be full of thanksgiving. And we know this because this is how we respond when we are treated with grace and generosity, right? When someone picks up our lunch or they surprise us with a gift, we feel thanks, don't we? I mean, we don't go, man, why didn't he pick up my lunch last month? Or, or when our friend receives a gift, like our spouse receives an unexpected gift, right, from a friend, we don't sit there and go, man, why didn't I get one? I mean, maybe you do, if you do, like, repent of that selfishness, but, <laughs> but, but that's not what we do, right? We're thankful that they've gotten this gift. We're thankful that we're experiencing this grace and generosity. Can you believe it? And friends, when we understand... I mean, when we truly understand what we have, eternal life, and that it comes only by God's grace, then when we truly understand that the life of heaven far exceeds any worldly loss, we're going to be thankful for God's grace. And we're going to be thankful for his grace to others. 
We won't grumble and begrudge that others receive that grace as well. We'll rejoice, rejoice together. I mean, no one who knows God's grace should complain, I worked harder or longer or deserve more because what more can we want than eternal life? What more can we want than eternal life? And that is what he has given us. Not only for me, not only for you, but for others as well. And when others experience that, we'll be thankful and rejoice with them. Think about it like this. Many of you know that the World Series is happening right now. I'm sure some of you are watching uh, Atlanta and Houston go at it. The Cardinals aren't in it, so it's not as, a, you know, I'm not giving as much attention to it, but it's still fun to watch, right? And it's still fun to cheer, and it's still fun to follow the different players. And, and, and even if you're a casual baseball fan, there's probably some players on Atlanta or Houston that you know, right? Like the Freddie Freemans and the Jose Altuves, right? These guys who are all-stars, who are superstars, who are potentially future Hall of Famers. These are the names that like casual baseball fans know. All baseball fans are going to know. But, but if you were to look at their lineup, Atlanta, Houston, you, you would see even the most diehard fan would see names you've never heard of before. You would see names that, that no one has ever heard of, right? Like the only people who know that this person's on the Braves is like their mom, right? Like, like those are the kind of players that are also on the roster, You know, they're the kind of player that's the backup catcher, the pitcher that's only there for when the game goes 18 innings. They won't play, and they're not going to impact the outcome of the game, and they're certainly not called on when the game is on the line. And yet, every single game, they put on their uniform, and they run down the foul line, and they warm up, and then they watch from the dugout. But when their team wins, these players who had no impact on the game these players who no one knows, these players, they will join in celebrating with the superstars and the future Hall of Famers and the names that everyone knows. And when the trophy is passed around, they'll, too, give a kiss to the World Series trophy before they pass it to the next person. And in the fall, when their World Series rings are handed out, they'll get a ring, and their ring will look just like everyone else's. It won't be a little bit smaller, it won't have less diamonds, and it won't have etched on the inside bench warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and when they're handed out, the superstars, the Jose Altuves, the Freddie Freemans, they won't look down upon them with, with disdain. They won't want to take that ring from them and say, you did nothing to earn that. I made the hit. I made the out. They, they're not going to say those things because regardless of their playing time or skill, they share in the championship. They share in the championship because they are part of the same team. And friends, that is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God that whether you have followed Jesus for 80 years or eight minutes, we do so only by his grace. And we are given the same thing eternal life. And because of that grace and that life that he has given to me and to you and to all of his people, we celebrate and we give thanks for that life. We celebrate and we give thanks for his grace to me and to you and to all his people. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your generosity 
For you have not given us what we deserve or what we have earned. You have given us abundant grace. You have been generous to your people, and for that we thank you. For that we praise you. For that we worship you and bow down and say that life comes only through you. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but thank you for giving us grace. And so help us now to walk in that and to live thankful lives for that grace. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said together, amen.